Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, the podcast that swivels books around in your ear holes to wax lyrical about literature. My name's Ash. And I'm Ash. And today we'll be talking about the, the comedy, comedy of, of errors. errors. Okay, yeah, very cute because it's because it's about twins with the same name. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, nice. But this is a this is a highbrow uh, literary podcast, so you can just um, you know, pog off. Oh, come on, give me a chance. I, I wish I could really, but it's you know it's out of my hands. I've, I've got the head honchos in my ear saying head honchos. Okay, fine, but you know it's my podcast, uh, our podcast. This is all just very gimmicky, and um, I'm, I'm not I'm not comfortable with it. Part of you must be. You know, this shtick is going to wear itself out quickly, so, you know, all the more reason for you to... To crack on. Besides, our, our voices are so similar that people are going to think this is just some kind of identity crisis. I tell you what, I'll start. My identity is rock solid. Why? What did she tell you? Was this play, as Coleridge called it, a pure farce? If so, how to account for the streak of existential dread that runs through Comedy of Errors? Where might we find in the play evidence of Shakespeare's progression as a dramatist? voice is nowhere near that high. And finally, how does Shakespeare express his themes acoustically in his verse? All that and more on this week's Ear... No, go on, you do it. Ear Read This. crack open the comedy of errors, let's begin by making three pertinent contextual points. It is a play often conjectured as Shakespeare's first, and estimates of its composition date occupy the much-debated region between 1589 and 1594. So like the last two you've done then? Yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm, ju- I'm just saying. Listen, I run a tight ship here. Either climb in or climb out, yeah? Don't just bob alongside like a annoying dead body. Why don't you just read the quotes? Oh, I'd love to, yeah, I'd be thrilled. To tease those trying to date the comedy of errors, there is a tantalising topical reference made in Dromeo's running bit about the fat kitchen wench. After his famously bawdy description of her, quote, She is spherical, like a globe. I could find out countries in her. He goes on to describe where and how he found each country, saying that Ireland was in her buttocks, which he found out by the bogs. Scotland he found in the barren palm of her hand. Spain he couldn't see, but found it hot on her breath. And France... France he finds in her forehead, armed and reverted, making war against her heir. So here in her carbuncled forehead is a howler of a topical pun. In 1589, Henry III of France was assassinated by a Catholic fanatic, and the heir who jumped in to fight off the Catholic League was Henry of Navarre, crowned Henry IV in 1594. And there are other real-world references, as uh, Victor Kiernan points out, quote, When the play was written... Oh, don't, don't, don't do a voice. When the play was written, the Dutch were in revolt against Spain, and during the long conflict, bans were imposed by Madrid on Dutch seaborne trade. These bans are reflected in Comedy of Errors by the strict laws between the two seaports, Syracuse and Ephesus. Unfortunately, these references are not specific enough to nail down an exact year, as there were civil wars in France before and after Henry III's death. 
interesting as they are, what with ni- mad, knife-happy Catholics, and rare as direct topical references are in Shakespeare, they're of limited use to us given the possibility of multiple dates for composition drafts or illusions made after the fact. However, as we shall see, stylistic differences in comedy of errors compared to Shakespeare's other early plays might be more helpful in making an educated guess at where it comes in the corpus. Rather like Two Gentlemen of Verona, Shakespeare drew from two main sources, conflating two plots and then complicating them. Because he basically just nicked stuff, didn't he? I mean, he, he wasn't ever kind of original. Okay, I, 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 I see why you're here. You're here to be the voice of idiots. Guilty as charged. Well, in the first podcast, I said it was impossible to spoil a good book. And what I meant by that is that the value of a text, its talent or originality, and you could make the case that those are one and the same, uh, covers a great d- deal more than its plot points. We've been conditioned in our age to believe that master storytellers simply come up with narrative twists. In their stories, plot is a completely separate ingredient to style or character, and their ability amounts to simply rationing out morsels of information and drip-feeding it to us. These are the tricks of the crime novelist or the TV binge merchant. It might be enjoyable stuff, but it's more like a card trick than witnessing genuine magic, which is what reading or watching something original feels like. By definition, it's something that we haven't seen before and couldn't have seen coming. If I told you the plot of Romeo and Juliet in sparknote form, years before Shakespeare wrote the play, it would not make me more original. What Shakespeare builds on the story frames he steals greatly overwhelms the scaffolding. So whose scaffolding did he steal this time? Uh, He stole two. His two sources were the Menachme by Plautus, which provided the basic twin part of the plot for Comedy of Errors, and the second one was Apollonius of Tyre by John Gower for the shipwreck love story between the twins' parents. Uh, This also served as a source for Pericles, a later play of Shakespeare's, in which Gower himself appears, becoming the only real poet to feature in Shakespeare's work. The Menachme features one set of estranged twins, both called the Menachmus, one of whom visits the town of the other and is mistaken for his twin. Shakespeare complicates this setup by giving his twins, both called Antiphilus, a set of manservant twins who are both called Dromeo. Those who think Shakespeare was a poet first and dramatist second will argue a later date for comedy of errors, compared to plays like Taming of the Shrew and The Two Gentlemen of Verona, primarily because it displays evidence of such highly confident stagecraft. If you had written poetry since childhood, and then by joining acting troops got into a position of being able to write plays, it's likely that the dramatic impulses would develop much later than your poetic ones. A comedy of errors is wildly ambitious, requiring two sets of twins to elude each other physically for the bulk of the play, creating all kinds of challenges for anyone wishing to stage it. It'd be much easier to pretend to be twins on the radio, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. But in the case of Comedy of Errors, the main contextual debate centres on whether or not Shakespeare had, in Ben Jonson's phrase, quote, small Latin and less Greek. If Shakespeare read his Plautus in the original Latin, then an early date is much more believable. There wasn't an English translation until 1595. And if he had to wait until then, because his Latin was small, the likely date of composition for Comedy of Errors would be much later. And this feeds into one of the oldest arguments about Shakespeare, one that merits a full podcast in itself whether he was the unlettered bumpkin genius or self-taught academic. John Milton called him, quote, Fancy's child, warbling his native wood notes wild, conjuring the slightly patronising image of Shakespeare as some jolly wood elf, half-educated, half-pissed, and playing a panpipe halfway up a tree. John Dryden elaborated on this view by saying, quote, Had he had more learning, perhaps he might have been less a poet. Which smacks a bit of teenage masochism. 
If only I was stupid, then I'd be happy. But more to the point, blistering out-of-nowhere talent isn't likely to so precisely model a play on a Latin text, which Shakespeare clearly did. John Dennis, firmly in the genius bumpkin camp, says he could, quote, never believe Shakespeare could read Plautus without pain or difficulty. The mucky truth here is that literary genius requires both the chaotic, spooky part, talent, and the hard graft part, which comes from education, whether you're self-taught or otherwise. The fantasy of the illiterate wordsmith is as ridiculous as saying that education will buy you talent by default. It won't. Anthony Burgess takes a reasonable middle ground and suggests that whilst Shakespeare might not have had Plautus open as he composed Comedy of Errors, he was probably familiar with it enough from reading it at school or perhaps even teaching it during his uh, so-called lost years. But let's get to the Comedy of Errors itself. Coleridge called the play pure farce, a definition he distinguished from comedy by saying that the situations in farce didn't have to be probable, only possible. Comedy of Errors has all the hallmarks of farce, from Punch and Judy-style violence, an unfeasibly improbable chain of events, breakneck pace, and plenty of puns. The fat kitchen maid that Dromeo describes is a perfect example of the cartoonishness of the play. She never actually comes on, so we as an audience are able to imagine a fantastically grotesque ogress without ever worrying about having our fantasy checked. Farce also feels kind of isolated from the real world, its silliness making it kind of immune to social realism. And adding to this impression of it, of the play as a kind of sandbox, the comedy of errors, in a rare move for Shakespeare, obeys Aristotle's classical unities of time, place and action. The play begins at morning and ends at sunset. All the action of the play is triggered by the misplaced twins, and we never once leave Ephesus, our setting. Although we do see different parts of Ephesus, and some might argue that to have a true unity of place, the setting should be no larger than the size of the stage itself, i.e. be set all in a drawing room. Ephesus in Shakespeare's play feels like a kind of Milkwood or Whoville. It's a town where everybody knows everyone else by name, and more importantly by face. And so it feels dreamily distant from the real world. We arrive there with no clear perception of social history or culture. And yet, despite the surface of knockabout silliness, it begins with a death sentence meted out to Aegean, father of the two estranged Antiphilus brothers. Having illegally travelled from Syracuse to Ephesus, Aegean has been sentenced to death. But he accepts his sentence with world-weary despair, saying, quote, Hopeless and helpless doth Aegean wend, but to procrastinate his lifeless end. Brilliantly, Shakespeare managed to smuggle all of the troublesome exposition into this one speech of Aegean's, and we hardly notice absorbing all of the relevant information, that this Aegean has had two twin sons called Antiphilus, who had twin manservants, both called Dromeo, and each set has become estranged. And we swallow all of this without thinking because the focus of Aegean's tale is his tragedy. This is the first sign that Shakespeare is up to a bit more than just farce. More than a neat set of mistakes, as Harry Levin describes it, quote, A planned confusion, created in order to be clarified, a series of misunderstandings, brought about under the guise of chance or contrivance by the playwright himself, who is usually at pains to keep the audience alerted at each step, so that it will end by congratulating itself on having foreseen the hazards. God, I, I read that well, didn't I? Well done, me. 
Those looking for more depth in the Comedy of Errors have found it, some finding heavy Christian undertones, particularly parallels with the doctrines of St. Paul, others a deep anxiety about loss of identity, both of which are mentioned by Arthur F. Kinney, quote, The Comedy of Errors intends, with one reference following another, to direct us away from the farce of a world of men who are foolish in their pursuit of fortune and family when they forget about God, and toward a sense of comedy, such as that conceived by Dante in his own great Commedia as providential confusion when wandering and bafflement invite man to contemplate wonder and grace and achieve, through a kind of rebirth, a baptising and godparenting, a restructuring of experience which takes the form not simply of union and transformation, but of reuniting, of making parts newly conceived into a whole which they had earlier enjoyed. Comedy of Errors employs a kind of class system to divide its characters up. The Dromeos, the quibbling servants, frequently beaten, out of season, with neither rhyme nor reason, are characters wholly of farce. They speak the language of farce and they respond in the key of it. We are not meant to feel their blows any more than the set-upon clown or wily coyote. The other set of twins, however, are in a much less raucous kind of comedy. Thus, the tribulations of Dromeo, or the Dromeos, are largely physical and earthy. They don't want to be beaten, they want to eat on time, and they want to be paid correctly. Whereas the trials of the Antiphilus brothers and Adriana are much more existential and profound. They might still be played for laughs, but they provide a stepping stone away from farce. As Alexander Leggett says, quote, While we laugh easily enough when Adriana fires a long, emotional speech at the wrong Antiphilus, it is not so funny when, later in the play, Aegean pleads with his son to save his life, and his son refuses to acknowledge him. The effect is to show how frail and vulnerable our attitudes and assumptions are, to bring into sharp focus the incompleteness of anything we may say or do, the fact that, however serious or important it may seem to us, there is always another viewpoint from which it is wrong or trivial or incomprehensible. Read one way, then, Comedy of Errors is a kind of existential panic attack, where anguish or injustices are ignored or disbelieved by a blank-faced community. The fact that Shakespeare plays this first for slapstick laughs, the wrong Dromeo getting an undeserved beating, and then for a different kind of laugh, Antiphilus agreeing to be taken in by a woman claiming to be his wife, then finally shows the same process movingly, Aegean, at the point of death, being rejected by the one person who could corroborate his story, shows the playwright's preoccupation with this fear of sneaky surfaces, the shakiness of reality. There is a widely held belief that great writers have a weakness for bad puns, and comedy of errors is, as I said before, smothered in puns. But here in Ephesus, puns are perhaps in the perfect environment, as Brennan O'Donnell says, quote, Puns function despite our attempts at control, no pun intended, to remind us how precarious the relationship of thought, word and thing really is, how dependent it is on the convention of assumptions and extra-linguistic contexts. Puns are tiny eruptions of coincidence that challenge our belief that we can say what we mean and mean what we say. The oscillation of mind between denotative and figurative meanings, serious and frivolous connotations, and rationally directed and anarchic speech motives can cause delight, a small poetic shock of surprise at a loophole in the web of language, or annoyance, the groan that usually accompanies a pun in otherwise rational conversations. So with all this precariousness, how has the play remained so light? It has an obsession with light, life not being real, a threat of execution hanging over the whole play, an existentially lost twin who in his first scene expresses his melancholy like this, quote, He that commends me to mine own content commends me to the thing I cannot get. I to the world am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop. 
How has this comedy escaped the fate of another comedy or farce such as Taming of the Shrew, which with the march of social progress has frequently been performed as more of a bleak tragedy of male oppression? Well, despite the fact that Taming of the Shrew contains two sisters who are wooed uh, simultaneously, effectively producing a doubled plot, the characters aren't doubles of each other. Bianca isn't a shrew, and their uh, their personalities are sharply distinct. In the Comedy of Errors, however, the characters are quite literally doubled, Though on stage we might be able to discern the difference between two actors, we accept they are identical because we are told so, and it's even more persuasive in the reading. The Dromeos sound exactly alike, and the two Antipholuses sound pretty similar, although they do have subtly different characteristics. Shakespeare has blocked our sympathetic instincts by not allowing us to be always certain who is speaking, and the resulting confusion is quite naturally comic. As Harry Levin says, quote, It is comedy which typifies, where it is tragedy which individualises. Where tragedy observes the nice distinctions between man and man, comedy stresses those broad resemblances which make it so difficult to tell people apart. Stalin's infamous quote about the death of one being a tragedy and the death of a million being a statistic is this thought's dark twin. But the point is for us that while there's nothing funny about Hamlet's existential turmoil, the very fact of it being something universal, something that could happen to anyone, means it can be played for laughs. Shakespeare wanted to keep this seesaw going in the minds of his audience, as Randall Martin says, quote, He was more interested in the capacity of spectators to hold several different le- kinds of reality in their minds as they watch the play. While they observe the characters as twins and the actors who are not, the audience continually notes shifting levels of physical actuality and imagined representation. Now, only the most thoughtful and successful productions could, cult- could pull this off. Most tend instead to opt for fast-paced hijinks and laughter, and rightly so. But certainly in the reading, without the distraction of physical farce, we notice this shift. What we are also forced to notice is that one event that happened before the play has left several characters in an identity crisis. The philosopher Etienne Sorio says, quote, A comedy of errors, or of ignorances, is inherent in the condition of men, who are perpetually groping through moral shadows and playing a game of blind man's bluff with their souls. Adriana and Antiphilus of Syracuse both wrestle with the quiddity of themselves, betraying a deep distrust of the stability of their identities, and, co- and both seek to measure them up or confirm them by bonding to other people. Thou art an elm, my husband, I a vine, Adriana says hopelessly to the twin she takes to be her husband. As for him, within a short while, he is saying to her sister, Are you a god? Would you create me new? Transform me then, and to your power I'll yield. Soon, to this woman he has just met, he goes even further, saying she is his own self's better part, his soul earth's heaven and his heaven's claim. How strong an identity can this drop of water have had before the play, if he is so easily transformed? Even Dromeo is quick to doubt his identity, saying to his master, Do you know me, sir? Am I your man? Am I myself? This fascination with multiple identities... Is universal. Anyone who has stopped to think about what might have happened if they did something different has in that act imagined a second self. And the reaction of characters to confirm themselves by fusing to other people is natural too. There are even some hints that the characters might have some awareness of the fluidity of selves. As Adriana tells Dromeo to play the porter well, showing that the idea of a performed identity or guise isn't exactly alien to her. This facet of Shakespeare's to perform his theme on a series of comic levels 
shows the extent of his preoccupation. As G.R. Eliot says, quote, I think the underlying reason for its success is the fact that Shakespeare was thoroughly penetrated by the comic horror, so to call it, implicit in the subject. Real horror attaches to the notion of the complete identity of two human beings, as in Poe's ghastly tale of a girl who turned out to be the re-embodiment of the mother who died in giving birth to her, and as in certain ancient legends of various lands, notably China. All normal persons, and especially Shakespeare, set so much store by human individuality that they shrink from the thought of it being submerged. Submerged is the perfect word here for the story of six characters whose loss of identity begins with a shipwreck. Once all six that is, the mother, the father, the two Dromeos and the two Antipholuses, are brought together by chance in Ephesus, the result for them is comically imbalanced. In the words of A.C. Hamilton, Antipholus of Ephesus, quote, endures a nightmare, while the other brother, quote, enjoys a delightful dream. One is rewarded with gifts, money and women, and the other is locked out of his house, arrested and declaimed as a lunatic. The extreme disparity in result for the twins, who have essentially had the same trick played on them, is Shakespeare's comment on the chaos that awaits those who lose their identity. Everything from fool's gold to random cruelty awaits those who lose themselves, either by mistakes or twists in fortune. What interests me the most about Comedy of Errors, and some of the other comedies too, is how Shakespeare manages to simultaneously care for and mock his subject. We've seen him do this before in The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Talking about Shakespeare's comedy, Victor Kiernan says, quote, Puritans of the decades after Shakespeare were too often humourless beings, as Milton was by comparison with him. When men are still groping and see no clear way forward, they can laugh at themselves and their puzzlements. When the road seems to have been found, it is time for joking to be laid aside. Shakespeare lived when social tensions were strong enough to stimulate literature without overpowering it. This time of transition and tension, as Kiernan says elsewhere, is, ripe, is a ripe time for dramatic poetry. Characters who speak with human bodies, but within human speech, i.e. in verse, become another kind of being entirely, a half-person, caught between rationality and superstition. And speaking of half-persons, let's talk about me? No, centaurs. Oh, much cooler. There are three key named locations in the comedy of Eris, Ephesus. The phoenix, the centaur, and the porpentine. Barbara Friedman comments on the symbolic allusions of these, saying, quote, the Syracusan twin lodges at the centaur, sign of a divided state. The Ephesus brother, who must be recovered, lives at the phoenix, sign of rebirth. And the porpentine, which is an old word for porcupine, had, believe it or not, strong associations with lust and copulation. Arthur F. Kinney says of the porpentine, the centaur and the phoenix that they are, quote, the traditional stations of hell, earth and heaven. The wandering brother, who receives gifts, leaves his mortal belongings at the centaur, and then is taken to the heaven of the phoenix. The same one who even goes as far as asking himself, quote, Am I in earth, in heaven, or in hell? Falls, as Charles Whitworth says, quote, Under the spells, as he believes, of a series of enchantresses. Adriana in Act 2, Luciana in Act 3, the courtesan in Act 4, and finally the abbess in Act 5. One enchantress in Act, a neat distribution with, as prelude, the soliloquy in Act One, in which he voices his fears of sorcerers, witches, and the like. And Ephesus indeed seems to have a reputation to be stuffed with magic, as Antipholus says, They say this town is full of cousinage, as nimble jugglers that deceive the eye, dark-working sorcerers that change the mind, soul-killing witches that deform the body, disguised cheaters, prating mountebanks, and many such-like liberties of sin. The Dr. Pinch, who is brought on to exercise the supposedly crazed twin, confirms the town's superstitions, saying, quote, 
Both man and master is possessed. I know it by their pale and deadly looks. Antiphilus, who seems to appear and disappear around Ephesus before the town works out that there are two of them, is described by Adriana as being, quote, born about invisible. And there are less direct gestures towards magic afoot too. E.M.W. Tilliard says, quote, The gold chain behaves in a way alien to the solidity of the material from which it is fashioned. It eludes its true owner. It leads to all kinds of mistakes, and the man to whom it is given in error enjoys it as one of the number of things of whose existence he is doubtful. In fact, though Antiphilus does not actually state it, the chain for him is fairy gold and might wither away to nothing at any moment. What with all these centaurs, phoenixes, old names for porcupines, enchantresses, fairy gold, and so on, the play moves further and further into unreality. As John Arthos says, quote, So it is that the conception of the world of this play is preposterous and sorcerer-ridden, and somehow all of a piece merges into the idea of life as a dream. What, says Antiphilus of Syracuse, confronted by his twin's wife, was I married to her in a dream? Or sleep I now and think I hear all this? What error drives our eyes and ears amiss? Dreams, witchcraft, and time itself are all regarded as potentially distrustful entities. As Dromeo says, quote, Time is a very bankrupt, and owes more than he's worth to season. Nay, he's a thief too. Have you not heard men say that time comes stealing on by night and day? Though to say the characters often suspect the town is somehow enchanted, they're also very quick to assume it is they themselves who have been transformed. As Adriana says to her sister, quote, What ruins are in me that can be found by him not ruined? Then he is the ground of my defeatures, my decayed fare, a sunny look of his would soon repair. And as old Aegean says later in the play, quote, Grief hath changed me since you saw me last, and careful hours with time's deformed hand have written strange defeatures in my face. But a sense of enchantment has been conjured well before the mention of any centaur or fairy gold. In the very music of his verse, Shakespeare is creating a sense of heightened unreality. As Brennan O'Donnell says, quote, Appropriately for the comedy of errors, with its emphasis on identity, and especially in finding oneself by losing oneself, Shakespeare gained precisely what he had lost in writing such strangely unwieldy verse. Adopting the antiquated measures of the knockabout farces of popular theatre, he emphatically homogenised the individual voices of the scene. The metre and rhyme, like a mask that transforms distinct voices to its own tone, or like some acoustic equivalent of the effect of darkness on visual perception, makes all voices sound virtually identical. The presentation of homogenous voices creates an acoustic anarchy. Rhyme will always sound predetermined. Hence our surprise or delight if we accidentally speak in rhyme. It happens to me all the time. So when a character does so, it can sound dogmatic or dreamy. We lose the sense of spontaneity. Luciana speaks in rhyme to Antiphilus, who has just fallen in love with her, and as Brennan O'Donnell says, quote, The beauty of its versification, however, works as a kind of oral equivalent of a cinematic soft focus. We hear her voice as the smitten and bewildered Antiphilus may be supposed to hear it. And then, when suddenly ditching rhyme, the effect can be subverted or deflated. As Victor Kuernan says of uh, Adriana's impassioned speech to her false husband, Quote, its blank verse makes this long speech all the more impressive, the play's rhyming couplets being nearly all designed for comic effect. We are aware of a sad discrepancy between a high ideal of marriage and the bitter reality of her own. Finally, throughout Comedy of Errors, there are within the verse lines doubles and divorces that provide what Brennan O'Donnell has called oral emblems of the themes of the play. Once the abbess of Ephesus, 
who turns out to be the Antiphilus brothers' long-lost mother and Aegean's long-lost wife, resolves all the errors, we finally get our happy ending. Interestingly, before she has sorted out who's who, she says, Not a creature enters my house, which furthers the notion that the people with mistaken identities have become temporarily less than human. But instead of the traditional comic ending, as Alexander Leggett says, quote, The final image of security is not a wedding dance, but a christening feast, a family celebration. This may be because of the play's concern with identity. Identity is surrendered in love and marriage, but when the original family is recreated, the characters join a comforting social group which asks only that they be their old selves. In finding their old selves, each of the characters, despite the fact they have stayed in the same place, has tra have travelled through a land of enchanted farce. Close to the end, a messenger runs on to say that one of the Antiphilus brothers has the quack Dr. Pinch bound up and will shortly kill the conjurer. And though, of course, Pinch is not slaughtered, the conjuring trick of Shakespeare's errors is shortly after broken. Thank you for listening to Ear Read This. I'll be joined by Adam later in the week to talk a bit more about Comedy of Errors and a lot more besides. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or drop us an email at earreadthis at gmail.com. If you're feeling nice, please leave us a review on iTunes, and happy reading. <laughs>